Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Well, pray with me, if you will. Father, we are grateful to be gathered together. It's it's certainly something that we can take for granted. But as Cliff reminded us, it is something that is a very precious gift, something that your, your saints have not always been able to enjoy, certainly not openly, certainly not freely. He's reminded of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and, and his own forced isolation from the body of Christ and how much he came to recognize the preciousness of the communion of saints. Something never to be taken for granted, something never to be uh, minimized, something that is a great and a precious gift. In fact, it is the very, very present, very this-worldly manifestation of the eternal state, the communion of saints, the fellowship of human beings gathered up in your life in Christ by your Spirit. And Father, especially in this Christmas season, I, I pray as, as Cliff exhorted us that our hearts and our minds would be turned back in a right way, in a sincere way, in a devoted way, to the glory that is yours in the face of Christ our Lord, whose coming we celebrate, whose glorious victory we are the beneficiaries of. What a marvelous time it is for us to be taken back in our own thoughts, in our own hearts, to these glorious truths. And I pray that, Father, as you minister to us in them, that you would also give us a burden to minister to others. There's always much distraction. There's always much activity, much busyness. And in the midst of all of it, I pray that we would be conscientious, eager to bear the fragrance of Christ our Lord in every place, in every circumstance. Lead out our hearts, lead out our minds in this time as we continue our worship. Father, I pray that you would communicate to each one, even to my own heart and mind, the glories that are yours in Jesus our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.
Well, I wanted to take a week away from Hebrews to consider Christmas, and I do this every year, and there's always a lot of, of ways we can go, a lot of different possibilities, and I, I didn't know what Cliff was going to do, what he was going to read, or um, how he was going to exhort us, but it fits very well with where I wanted to go today. And one thing that struck me is this idea of keeping our hearts and our minds in the right place as we come to Christmas time. I think that for me, one of the two sidedness of Christmas is again just the fact, uh, it, it reminds me every year of how easily we can, um, how easily we can find ourselves carried away by notions and ideas that really are, are away from the reality of what we have in Christ, the reality of what has come in him. Christmas is an emotional time. It's a time filled with uh, lots of sensations, sights, sounds, activities. And because it's a cultural thing and not just a spiritual thing, it's something that very naturally creates all sorts of images, impressions. It evokes a lot of emotions in us. And it's not that any of that is necessarily bad, but I think we don't often stop and think about perhaps how the emotions, how the impressions, the sensibilities that we have about Christmas may actually be very much removed from the reality of what it is that we're actually celebrating. And when we come even to, as I thought about this this week, like I said, it's something that kind of strikes me every year at this time, I don't know if bittersweet is the way to put it, but there is kind of a sense of, 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 of both the glory of what we, we really focus on at Christmas time, but how easily we, we get off track, even in our spiritual devotion, even in our spiritual contemplations. Because again, Christmas is very much a part of our culture. It's a part of the world's culture. Uh, it, it's a kind of global phenomenon. And everybody has his own sense at Christmas time, and uh, you know what is it about, and what we remember. We remember things from our childhood. We remember things from, you know, a special Christmas vacation or whatever it happens to be, uh, a, a special time, a special gift, whatever it may happen to be, a special Christmas program that we watched every year. But as we deal even with the spiritual side of Christmas, uh, and this is kind of where my mind went this week thinking about this, we obviously uh, focus in on this idea of the birth of Christ. And that has its own impressions, its own imagery, its own emotions uh, that, again, may or may not connect us with really the significance of that. And to really view the glory of that event in a right sort of way. 
I've titled this, and and actually Luke chapter 2 is what I wanted to draw from, a very familiar story. Maybe in that way it's a good story because it's one that we're all familiar with. Even if we've ever seen the Charlie Brown Christmas special, we're all familiar with Luke chapter 2. But I think Luke is getting at something more profound than what we tend to discern just in the words themselves, in the way the story unfolds. So I've titled this Unveiling the Glory of Christmas, and kind of where my mind has gone in this is to begin to sort out the inglorious glory of Christmas, the inglorious glory of Christmas. Again, because Christmas has a spiritual dimension to it, certainly for Christians, and I think for the culture, although it's kind of we're getting farther and farther from that. But there are all kinds of images and ideas, and and again, centered in the birth of Christ is where we tend to derive those images. And my mind this week went back to, you know, the the nativity scenes that you can buy in the store, and and, and a lot of them are, are, are kind of cheesy and... Uh, you know, they, they, they tend to kind of highlight these ideas of the baby Jesus, innocence and harmlessness and, uh, you know, this, this, this child that came into the world and a kind of whimsical sentimentality associated with that. And I think often, you know, we as Christians, I know I've experienced this in interacting with people, there's a tendency sometimes to push back against that push back against that sentimentality and to say, uh, you know, that really depreciates the person of Christ. It's kind of representing him as this innocent little child. It depreciates, you know, the majesty of his deity, the majesty of of the power and the authority of God uh, that are manifest in the incarnation. And certainly it's true that sentimentalizing Jesus is something that does depreciate the significance of the incarnation, sentimentalizing uh, the nativity, the birth of Christ. But I would argue also that the answer is not to renounce that in favor of exalt, uh, kind of exalting and pressing to the forefront the issues of Christ's kingship and his power. Without sentimentalizing Jesus, I think the key is to see those things that tend towards our sentimentalizing of him, but to reconcile them with those notions of kingship, power, to see how both sets of images really are truthful in expressing who and what we're to understand about this messianic birth. In other words, the inglorious glory of the coming of the Messiah. Well, I want to look at this in terms, and again, this is drawn from Luke chapter 2, but I want to look at this in terms of some of these particulars in which we see this dynamic of an inglorious glory. And the place to begin is obviously with the conception of Jesus himself in Mary's womb. First of all, we tend to talk about the virgin birth, uh, but it's actually not a virgin birth. It's a virginal conception. Uh, That's more the idea that is behind the idea of 
Jesus' conception in Mary's womb, a virginal conception. But secondly, there is a sense in which we tend to confuse virginal conception with divine conception. And what I mean by that is that you often see scholars argue for the fact, the necessity of virginal conception, Jesus being conceived in Mary as a virgin, because without that, then he would have an earthly father. Virginal conception as necessary for Jesus to be the son of God, born of this power of the spirit. Well, Catholics, for their part, tend to see the virginity of Mary as essential in the sense of the fact of her purity, her suitability to bear the Son of God. And so they have the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary, not just that she was a virgin at the time of the conception of Jesus, but throughout her life because of this idea of purity. Her, in a sense, being exalted above other people, even being free of original sin in that sense. The point I'm making here is to say that the Spirit's work, the Spirit's work as recorded in the Scriptures, did not depend on whether Mary was married, unmarried, had other children. Now, I'm not denying the virginal conception. I'm just saying that the idea of the Spirit conceiving Jesus in the, Mary, in, the, in the womb of Mary had nothing necessarily to do with whether she was married or unmarried, whether she was a virgin or not a virgin. While some have argued the reason for her virginity, is it was in order to demonstrate, in fact, that Jesus didn't have an earthly father. The fact that Mary was betrothed to Joseph and everybody knew she was betrothed to Joseph and therefore the implication was that being betrothed but not having a consummated marriage, therefore ipso facto she would be a virgin, therefore this must be a supernatural conception and birth. That was necessary to demonstrate uh, the source of, of this child, Jesus. But the truth is again that that was all irrelevant. People made that charge anyway. There was nobody who believed, oh, this child must have been born supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. In fact, you see the slur directed at Jesus. I think it's implied later on in in John uh, John chapter 8, where he's talking about finding fault with the Jews for their unbelief, even those who had believed in him, and dealing with this thing of who are the real children of Abraham. And they say, we're not children of fornication like you are. We have God as our father. And even when uh, Jesus is referred to, they refer, you see the Jews referring to him as the son of Mary, and these are his brothers and his sisters. This is the child of Mary. In that culture, you would call the son by his father, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. No, this is the son of Mary. 
In other words, the idea is that this child is an illegitimate child. One way or the other. So if we argue that Mary's virginity was, if not essential, in other words, the spirit could do his work regardless of her past birthing experiences. But if we argue that Mary's virginity was important in terms of providing evidence of the work of the spirit and even cultivating that perception of it being the work of the spirit, it actually had the opposite effect. The way in which Jesus was conceived, or let me put it this way, the virginity of Mary convinced no one that Jesus was conceived by the Spirit. And in fact, it created a negative impression. Yes, if she would have been married, if she would have had other children, or even just if she, had a, if she was married to Joseph, people would have assumed Joseph was the father which would have been incorrect, but it wouldn't have put her in a negative light. They would have simply viewed Jesus as another child of Joseph and Mary, just like any other children they would have. It would have been a wrong conclusion, but it would not have denigrated in any way Mary or Joseph or even the child, Jesus himself. The shame that was imposed upon Mary, everybody was convinced that this was a pregnancy conceived outside of marriage. Whoever the father was, nobody said, oh, this, the father must be the Holy Spirit. Somehow God, even the faithful in Israel, didn't say, oh, this is a miraculous conception. They said this woman has had Ill, uh, illegitimate relations and has conceived a child out of wedlock. And that shame followed Mary throughout her whole life. But it went to her family as well, most especially to the child of her supposed immorality. The only reason why Joseph didn't put her away, Joseph knew her as well as anyone. And when she turns up pregnant, he right away said, you know, she's been sleeping with somebody, right? It was only because of the angel communicating to Joseph that he had any confidence of what had actually happened. So here's my point in this first issue of Inglorious Glory. God chose to bring his son into the world in a manner that forever hung over the head of the beloved son, the shadow and the condemnation of illegitimacy in a culture in which that was scandalous. Jesus lived his entire life under the shadow of illegitimacy. I don't know if we think about that. It's not that big of a deal in our culture. It used to be. I remember my mom telling a story when she was in high school, a girl that was in her high school class just kind of disappeared. And nobody knew what happened, whether they, you know, they kind of moved away or whatever. And then she was back in like her senior year or whatever. Well, she had gotten pregnant and the family had taken her away to have this child 
because of the shamefulness of it, and then they came back after the birth of the child. We don't have that same sense in our culture anymore, but certainly in first century Palestine, this was a scandalous thing. God hung over the head of his beloved son forever the scandal of illegitimacy. Was it true? No. Did anyone believe it? No. The second thing I think that testifies to this idea of an inglorious glory is the occasion, the circumstance that led to Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Yes, Bethlehem was assigned by prophetic determination, right? We read in in the prophet Micah that the Messiah would be born, or at least the Jews held, they interpreted that passage in that way. Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And yes, that was David's ancestral birthplace. But though it was assigned prophetically and it was appropriate because of Jesus being of the house of David, his birth in Bethlehem was not volitional. It was enforced. The reason Jesus was born in Bethlehem was because of Roman domination, oppression, extortion, Right? Why were they there? Because Rome said, we're going to take a a census to extract taxes from you. Therefore, everyone in Judea and Galilee has to go to their ancestral city to be counted. Mary is at the point of giving birth. And to travel from Nazareth down to Bethlehem is a long trip. On a donkey, harsh conditions. They, they, they didn't just find themselves there in some kind of happy sort of way. It was Roman authority and domination and oppression that found them in that place where Jesus was born. And so the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, in the circumstance of it, didn't testify to his royal status as one of David's descendants. What it testified to is the indomitable power of imperial Rome. A power that Mary and Joseph and even Jesus himself was subject to. Well, wait a minute. I thought the Messiah was coming to conquer and overthrow the subjugating power. Certainly the theology of Israel at that time was that when Messiah comes, he's going to overthrow Rome. Jesus was born at the time that the zealot movement was just beginning to take off. As I've said before, Judas the Galilean was kind of a founding uh, part of that movement. And he led this rebellion against Rome, and it was a bloodbath. Rome crushed them. And that's why later the religious leaders in Israel are saying, you know, the high priest, John, John 11, if we let this go on, the Romans are going to come. And they're going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. They're going to take our place from us. We've seen it happen before. That was around 6 AD. 
This all came about because of Rome's power and oppressive, exploitative, extortionary power. Well, the next thing then is the circumstance of Jesus' birth. Again, first of all, his birthplace. He was born in Bethlehem. Even the prophet said, you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too insignificant to be among the chiefs of Judah. Bethlehem was a tiny, unwalled village just south of Jerusalem, what we would call a hole in the wall. It was an unwalled village. There was nothing to protect. There was nothing significant there. You say, okay, well, but it was David's ancestral city. It doesn't matter. Every expectation was that Messiah would be born. He would, he would be associated with Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place where Yahweh had his throne. Jerusalem was the city of the great God. Jerusalem was where the kings of Judah, the Davidic line, had their throne. From the time that David conquered Jerusalem and established his throne there, that was the city of David. That was the place of regal power and authority and rule in Israel. Even when Israel was reduced down to just the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, the house of David was reduced to those two tribes, still the throne was in Jerusalem. That was the place where the temple was. That was the place where Yahweh was enthroned. Jerusalem is where the Messiah would have his regal, his regal place. Jesus was born in a, the lowliest of villages, but also, as we know, under the lowliest of circumstances. Circumstances that attested and, 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 and spoke of this idea of powerlessness destitution, humiliation. Jesus' birth circumstances were inconsistent with anything that we would regard as consistent with any degree of human status. Yes, it was the ancient world. Yes, they didn't even come close to have it in the standard of living that we do. Solomon, in all his glory, lived far worse than the poorest person in our country, other than maybe somebody in the street. It was a whole different world then. But even then, in that culture, the birth circumstances of Jesus were as low as you could go. Nothing that would communicate royal status with regard to a human being, even less anything that would testify of his divine status as incarnate son. This idea of a manger, you know, we often think of, you know, some kind of a nice little wooden cradle or something like that, or even just, you know, what we think of as, as a feeding trough. But in that world, those, those kinds of things weren't very common. You, you had animal stalls that would tend to have uh, some sort of a, a shelf or a structure that was built that they would throw the hay or the food on, and, and that was the feeding point for the animals, and that was the place where Jesus was laid. The term manger really kind of more largely refers to just an animal stall. 
And yes, providentially, there was no place in any inn. They had traveled to another city, but Bethlehem was a tiny little village. There was no place for them to stay. But nonetheless, the birth circumstance was as humbling as could possibly be imagined. The sovereign, all-glorious God of the universe chose to enter the world and manifest himself as the lowliest of men in the lowliest of circumstance. And yet, again, not arbitrarily or capriciously, that manner of self-revelation on God's part was not capricious or arbitrary. It was very intentional. In coming into the world in that way, God was revealing important truth about himself. God is truth. He is what he does. He does what he is. Nothing is arbitrary with him. Nothing is just, well, that's just the way it worked out. There's an intentionality in that. God acts in truth because he is truth. Every situation, every circumstance, every word, every deed is ordered by him to testify truthfully to who he is. So all the things that we've discussed are ordered by God as truthful testimony to who he is in glorious glory. The same is true, I think, a couple more things of circumstances, and then I'll I'll kind of bring this together. But it's also significant, I think, the time of Jesus' birth, the fact that he's born at night. Well, it just happens. You know, you got some hours of darkness, some hours of daylight. Chances are a baby's going to come at night, maybe during the day. As I said, everything with God is intentional. And I think there are at least three significances to Jesus' entrance into the world at night. He was, first of all, born into the darkness in the sense of, of from the very outset, there is this presence in confrontation of he meets the darkness as it represents this dark world. And that very much suits with the prophets, right? The way the prophets spoke. She who dwelt in darkness has seen a great light. Galilee of the Gentiles by the sea, right? The people who dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. We saw that in John, Jesus is the light of the world. But the second thing is that the darkness also veiled his birth. There was a hiddenness to it. There was a hiddenness in the sense Again, in a marvelous sense, as as I've thought about this, Yahweh, the great king, if you look at the prophets and how they talked about Yahweh's return, it's treated as, as the most magnificent, open, triumphal, glorious entrance it, it, it's, it's like the language of the procession of a king, a conquering, victorious king. Look through the prophets, and we've dealt with this even as we went through Zechariah and other things. But, but when Yahweh returns to Zion, there's a glory in it. The great king of all the earth is returning. He will be coming in, and all the world will see it, right? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. 
Yahweh's return. The one who had promised to come and return and restore all things made his entrance in complete obscurity. Not openly, not with great fanfare. Not to the reception of throngs of human beings. The entrance of the great king was constructed in that sort of a way. Seems very different than what the prophets had said. The darkness veiled his birth. And then thirdly, the darkness enveloped Jesus in his birth. It enveloped him. In the sense that God himself in the incarnate son didn't just simply enter the darkness, he was saturated in it. Bearing in himself the darkness as a son of Adam. And then the last thing in terms of the circumstances is the persons to whom God chose to make known his great and glorious entrance. Remember, Israel's been waiting for 600 years for Yahweh to return to Zion. And the prophets painted this in such spectacular, glorious terms. And you have this birth of this baby in a stall, in a nowhere town, in a nowhere circumstance, in the middle of the night. And the people who are made aware of it are shepherds, not rulers, not the priestly elite in Jerusalem, not the scribes, not the authorities, not the people of significance and power, shepherds. And as much as shepherds were powerless people, they were basically at the bottom of the social pecking order, they also, at the bottom of the pecking order, were largely despised. One man put it this way, in the first century, shepherds, and particularly hireling shepherds, which many of them were, this harkens us back to John 10, right? The hireling Many of them were day laborers. They didn't have any money. They didn't own sheep. They were hired to watch and care for the sheep. In the first century, shepherds, particularly hireling shepherds, had a rather unsavory reputation. Rabbinic sources indicate that they tended to be dishonest and thieving. They led their herds onto other people's land and pilfered the produce of the land. Because they were often months at a time without supervision, they were often accused of stealing some of the increase of the flock. Consequently, the pious were warned not to buy wool, milk, or kids, you know, small uh, sheep or goats from shepherds on the assumption that it would be stolen property. They were the lowlifes. Shepherds were not allowed to fulfill a judicial office. They couldn't be trusted. They were dishonest people. They were not allowed to fulfill a judicial office or be admitted in court as witnesses. A midrash on Psalm 23.2, midrash is, a, is it's like a Hebrew exegesis. It's a, 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 an interpretive treatment of a passage in the Old Testament. A midrash on Psalm 23.2 reads, There is no more disreputable occupation than that of a shepherd. Philo, a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher of Alexandria, and you're probably familiar with Philo, at least you've heard the name, but he was a contemporary of that time. 
he wrote about looking after sheep and goats. He said, such pursuits are held to be mean and inglorious, not mean in the way that we use it, but lowly, irrelevant, insignificant, mean and inglorious. The low lowlifes that were the most despised people in Palestinian Near Eastern culture at that time are the ones to whom Yahweh displayed his grand entrance into the world. And then the last piece of this is the appearance and annunciation of the angels, the, the annunciation of Jesus' birth. In the middle of this darkness, in the middle of this silence, all of a sudden you have the sky lit up and you have the proclamation. Again, Cliff read it, but I'll read it again with you. The angel says, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news, a gospel of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For today, in the village of David, there has been born a Savior, Messiah the King. Messiah Adonai the King. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws lying on a feeding shelf. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. So you go in a moment from this this darkness, this veil, this obscurity and seeming insignificance of Jesus' birth, all of a sudden, like a veil being pulled away, the sky is filled with angelic hosts and the brightness of their presence. And they pronounce the actual meaning of that event, the actual significance of this inglorious scene. But importantly, they say, This is a sign. Specifically, what is a sign? Christ the King, Messiah Adonai. The Lord Messiah, who is representing Yahweh's return to Zion. The sign is Messiah the King on a feeding shelf. There's the sign to you. That's profound. When we think about, again, what do we understand about the birth of Jesus? What does it represent? How do we view it? A baby in strips of cloth on a feeding shelf for animals. That's Messiah, the king. Antithetical to what Israel expected. Antithetical to how Israel understood the Messiah. Antithetical to how Israel understood the messianic glory, the messianic work the messianic kingship. And as quickly as that pulled back veil occurs, it closes again. And we're back to the heavenly splendor yielding darkness, silence, and the squalor of the stall. The shepherds left, 
to tell their experience, and they left Mary and Joseph with this baby to carry on with their lives. Mary pondering all of this in her heart. What's my point? This glorious sign, the veil closes, darkness, silence, we're back in an animal stall, heading back to Nazareth, soon to be fleeing to Egypt. Messiah the King, the good news of Messiah the King, brings no transformation of their circumstance, no deliverance from difficulty, just the ordinary circumstances and the challenges of life. No best life now. So my point in all of this is, is I think Luke constructs this. Obviously, he's recounting what historically happened. But I think it's important for us to see this, this, this apparent uh, irreconcilability between the circumstance and what it actually signified. The ingloriousness of all of this and yet the glory that's hiding behind that. Well, first of all, I mean, we say, why, why did God do it this way? Well, the, the, I think the unremarkable nature of Jesus' birth, the inglorious quality of his birth, reflected the fact that he was a son of Adam as we are. An ordinary human birth under ordinary circumstances. He shares our broken humanness and all that comes with it. Inconvenience, trouble, distress, oppression, hardship. He came into the world in the way that ordinary human beings do, and certainly the way they did in that time and place. You weren't born in a hospital surrounded by a bunch of nurses in sterile clothing or whatever. And yet, here's the point, the ordinariness of that circumstance veiled the unique extraordinariness of it. What was absolutely ordinary and even not even noteworthy at all unremarkable, actually obscured or, or seemed to hide the extraordinariness of his birth. What was completely unremarkable was the most profound and sublime event in the history of the creation. Do you think about that? The most profound most significant, most sublime event in history, in the history of God's creation. That birth was God bringing about his eternal intent for his creation. The mystery, the glory that angels long to look into. God's intent to eternally bind himself in everlasting perfect love and intimacy to his creation through his image-bearing creature, man. 
So the birth of Jesus was God's affirmation, God's faithfulness throughout all of history, throughout the Old Testament history, God has said, I will be faithful, I will be faithful, I will be faithful. I am a righteous God, I will keep my word. I will be faithful. And the birth of Jesus affirmed God's faithfulness to his purpose to be one with his creation, to reconcile all things to himself. But it also revealed the astonishing, unimaginable, even inconceivable way in which God was going to do that. He had said he was going to do that, but nobody had any way of even beginning to get their heads around how it was he would do that. I'm going to read a little bit. This is from, again, Torrance on the Incarnation. And, and I want you to listen to this and think about these things. And if, if you want to get this quote later or something where you can write it down, that's fine. But listen to how he treats this again, the birth of Jesus, that, that to all appearances was a, a, a nothing event. And as I say, it was the most profound and sublime thing that ever happened in the history of God's creation. And even since then. Even if we say, what about the resurrection? That was just the consummating of what God did in the incarnation. Torrance says, in himself, in himself, as God and man in union, Jesus is the actualization of the eternal purpose of God to give himself to humanity in pure love and grace. Here in Jesus the Messiah, divine election has moved into time, and here all through the life of Jesus there takes effect in actual history, time, and space, God's election of man to be God's man. He comes to be God for man in order to remake man for God. God has eternally willed himself for fellowship with mankind and willed mankind for fellowship with himself. Jesus the Messiah is the reality of that will, for in him God turns towards men and women and wills to be one with them. And in him they are turned wholly towards God to be one with God." These are not two independent movements of God, but one movement of redeeming love in which God gives himself unreservedly unreservedly to man and in which he gathers up humanity into the life of himself in Jesus the Messiah. Here where God has given himself to be man's God once and for all, nothing can undo that decision. But here too, God gives man to himself once and for all, and nothing can undo that decision. It is an eternal election of love and everlasting covenant. But let us note that this means a covenant with humanity in its sin. An election of man in sinful existence. God binds himself in Jesus to sinful men and women and graciously accepts them. Even within this situation, the incarnation is an act of pure grace. It is above all the movement of God's eternal love to be one with men and women in spite of their unworthiness and sin. 
But for this very reason, election intensifies the situation created by sin, intensifies the enmity between man and God. God gives himself to sinners, and sinners cannot escape that gracious decision, which has finally overtaken them and gathered them into covenant relation with God. They cannot overcome the will of God the purpose of God. God's love wills that the sinner shall not escape, shall not elude the election of grace. And that means that the sinner who refuses this election of grace resists that grace and is resisted by it. In other words, the election which moves into history in Jesus the Messiah and creates union of man with God involves the meeting of God and man over human sin. The very will of God to give himself in love is the positive act here, but the situation of man's sin means that God's positive will of love calls mankind to account for their sin in eluding him and alienating themselves from him. It stands man face to face with the divine love which wills that mankind shall not isolate itself, shall not be without God by taking its own way. In other words, he won't leave the creation to itself. Because self-will is now the nature of man, the good news of Christmas becomes already the news of the contradiction of sinners in the passion of the Messiah. Behold, this child is set for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign that will be spoken against, that the thoughts out of many hearts may be revealed. Even as Simon added, turning to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So this inglorious circumstance testified truthfully to God's glory. Why is that important? Well, because, and this is kind of where I began, maybe not all that clearly, when we come to these ideas, and I think all Christians would say, yes, the glory of God is associated with the birth of Jesus. But we think of those concepts through the lens of how we understand glory. How we think these things work, what they look like. And so the fullness of God's glory in the birth of the Messiah, which there's nothing glorious about it, in fact, it seems to argue against the glory of God, confronts and indicts our natural expectations of what God's glory looks like and what it even means for us. How it should appear. What does it look like? What does it mean for us? We look for divine glory in transcendence, standing above, sitting on a throne, right? being separate from, holy other, transcendent, consistent with our notions of glory as human beings, our notions of power, our notions of authority. If we ascribe glory to a human being, we would never ascribe glory to a human circumstance like we see in the birth of Jesus. We would never call that glorious. And we impose our sense of what glory looks like on God's own disclosure of glory. 
John the Baptist struggled with this. He understood the Messiah as the glory of God, Yahweh coming into the world to put all things right. And he sees this ministration of Jesus inglorious, and he says, are you the one? Should we wait for another? As Jesus is writhing and dying on the cross, it is the last expression of inglorious glory. Over his head is the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And the Jews are incensed at that. And they're mocking him. And they're saying, if you're really the Son of God, come down. Then we'll believe. This isn't what glory looks like. This isn't what the God of Israel looks like. We don't associate glory with submission, self-humiliation, and self-giving. The point of that Torrance reading was to show the infinite, almost unimaginable self-giving of God in ways that we can't even imagine. And yet, the point is this, that is precisely the way in which God expresses the truth of his intrinsic effulgence of glory. God isn't pretending, he's not feigning something, he's not putting on a show, he's not trying to create an impression when he discloses himself in that sort of inglorious, self-humiliating, self-giving way, he is precisely and fully expressing the truth of who he is. The reason for that manner of expression is precisely that God is love. That's what love looks like. That's what love does. So for the Messiah to truly and fully embody and truthfully reveal the living God, the God of Israel and his will for the creation, Jesus had to come into the world as a son of Adam bearing the creational curse. Because who he is and what he does is synonymous with the will of God in him. You see him, you see the Father. But more than simply that, he had to come into the world as a servant. Very much at the heart of the the prophetic scriptures, the servant songs in Isaiah. The Messiah would come as the servant's son fully submitted to God, but fully submitted to God's children as the human embodiment of the divine love, which is the essence of the divine being. The reason we can't see the glory of God in in ingloriousness, or to the extent that we don't see that, is that we don't understand this reality of God as love. And Jesus made much of this even in his earthly ministry. He could not manifest the truth of God without coming and being in, embodying in himself this principle of self-giving love, because that's what God is. Thus the prophetic portrait of the Messiah. And thus the prophetic portrait of Yahweh as accomplishing his will through his Messiah. 
And there are lots of places you could go to. I mean, just look at Isaiah 40, look at uh, 59 and 60, but even Hosea 1 through 3. Isaiah 40 is great. It starts that second section of Isaiah, but where you have God promising, you know, comfort, comfort my people, speak kindly to Jerusalem, say that her warfare is ended. Restoration, renewal. Yahweh comes in this glorious, mighty way, and what does he do? He carries his lambs in his arms. Hosea 1 through 3, you see the God who says, you have taken my love for you, and you have even the things that I've given you in my love, and you have used them to woo other lovers and chase other lovers. You've been a harlot. You've been unfaithful to me from the beginning. But I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to humiliate myself in the sense of pursuing you to woo you, to win you, to betroth you to myself in righteousness forever. And I will make a covenant with the creation on your behalf to bless you. See, we don't, we don't do that. Glory doesn't look like that. Glory doesn't chase after the one who has wronged us. Glory looks like having justice, right? Getting it right. Even vengeance. Israel could not see in the Messiah the truth of her God because their conception of the divine glory was flawed. They did not understand what the divine glory looked like. The ordinary circumstance, the unremarkable circumstance of Jesus' birth, and even the unremarkable circumstance of his life, culminating with the ignominious death of the cross, was the last thing that anybody saw as glorious. Even the issues of the innocence, the frailty of Jesus' birth, the ingloriousness of it, it needs to be viewed through a different lens. Not as actually inglorious, from our perspective inglorious, but as truly glorious, all of the things that, that, would, that we would say, I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want to have to ride to, to, you know, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. I wouldn't want to have to go through that. I w- you know, how humiliating and degrading. These are human beings, and you have a baby born on a feeding shelf? How degrading. These are the things that God says actually tell you the truth of who I am. And I'm not denying God's sovereign glory. I'm not denying that he is the king of all things. I'm not denying that he rules over all. I'm saying that just as Jesus had to teach his disciples, we've got to rethink how these things actually work in practice. The God who rules over all is the God who uses his authority and his power as the ministration of love. Resource to serve, resource to restore, resource to heal. That's what Torrance is trying to get at there. So we, saints, as the sons and heirs of Jesus' glory. Paul says we are children 
of God. And if we are children of God, then we are heirs. Heirs with Christ of all that he has inherited. Heirs of the glory of God in Christ. Paul says, when Christ is manifest in his glory, we will also appear in his glory. Okay, what does glory actually look like? Who's going to sit on your right and your left? Who's going to be first in your kingdom? Who's going to be in charge? You will drink the cup that I drink, but you don't understand what this is all about. You don't know what glory looks like. But saints, as sons and heirs of Jesus' glory, we need to rethink our own perceptions and expectations. What does it look like for God to love us? What does it look like to be sharers and heirs in God's glory? Go back and read 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul tells the Corinthians what glory looks like. You're kings, we're nothing. You have everything. We're hungry, we're sleepless, we're this, we're that. We're the off-scouring. God has made us the, the apostles last of all. We're the off-scouring until now. And look at Philippians chapter 3. I've said many times that that is the, I think, the most focused presentation of Paul's view of the Christian life. And he says, all of these things that were my glory as an Israelite. First of all, an Israelite among the chosen people of Abraham. But beyond that, of the tribe of Benjamin. One of the faithful tribes with Judah in David's kingdom. And beyond that, a Pharisee of the most noble and devout sect. Zealous for Torah zealous for God's truth to the point of persecuting this false way, these followers of Jesus. And yet whatever was my credential, whatever was to my glory, I count as manure compared with the surpassing excellence of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I want to know him not having a righteousness that is according to the way in which I have lived out in my glory, my credentialed glory, but the, but the righteousness that is through the faithfulness of the Messiah and my share in him. I want to know him and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, and so ultimately to attain to the resurrection of the dead. I haven't attained all of this, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And he says, all who are complete, all who are mature, should take this view of things. What is the glory appointed for us? Sharing in the Messiah. In glorious glory. The one who from the point of his birth was dogged by the charge of illegitimacy, demon possession, insanity. Are we willing to be fools for Christ? Are we willing to be inglorious that we would actually know the glory of God? Christmas time is a great time for us to rethink these things and to step back and say, 
What are my impressions? What are my perceptions? How do I understand this cute coming of the baby Jesus? Or the great glory of God in an angelic visitation? What does all this mean? What do we do with it? Father, it's always a good reminder for us to have to step back and rethink. It's so natural, it's so easy. We so readily take our notions, our human sensibilities, our sense of how things work, our sense of how things ought to be, our sense of what these terms and these concepts mean, and we impose them on you. And then we find ourselves discouraged, and we find ourselves unthankful, and we find ourselves wandering from you, because where is the glory? Where is the greatness? Where is the privilege and the exaltation of being sons of the kingdom. Father, I pray that we would recognize that our high calling is to be sharers in your life and to be testifiers of the truth of our God. And when we consider the way in which you testified to the truth of yourself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the human Messiah who, in whom is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It really makes us step back and say, what does it really look like to be sharers in and to testify to the divine glory? Help us to consider these things. Father, help us to contemplate them. May we truly be, as Paul said, transformed by the renewing of our minds. In this Christmas season, may our hearts be filled with all glory and exultation in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray and for his sake. Amen.